This is Dead Stick Radio, episode 16, recorded September 17, 2020. Do drones have a place at a GA airport? This episode is brought to you by Podcast Edmonton. Whether you're starting a new podcast or looking to take your podcast to the next level, visit podcastedmonton.com. So I'll just I'll just give you some background on this. So we started this podcast in China in about what a year and a half ago now, uh, almost two years ago. Yeah, um, and we called it Dead Stick Radio. Uh, so a, a dead stick is what happens when the engine fails on, a, on an airplane. You have to glide it in. That's a common thing in racing. Uh, so we figured it was kind of a, a fun name for it. And the original idea was just share some of the stories of people we meet, cool, interesting people from all over the world. Um, a lot of them we meet through racing and just kind of get these stories out that don't normally get told. So most aviation podcasts are about like an Oshkosh summary or recap or something like that. Or flight training. Yeah. Pretty much most most podcasts are flight training. Yeah, how to deal with weather or something where we're trying to get more more into the adventurous side, the experimenting side when things go wrong all the time. So that's the idea. So you pretty much contribute half the stories for all, <laughs> no, for all your exploits? No, 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 not even close. <laughs> like, man, you should hear some of the people we've talked to. Yeah. Like one guy, he uh, he built a, a BD-5 jet, which is uh, pretty much the same size as your drone except manned, and it's a jet. I think he had, what, like 15 dead sticks? Yeah, a whole bunch of dead sticks and a thing. He, he designed uh, the whole uh, aileron system. So the ailerons weren't deflecting enough, and uh, it was because, you know, there was so much slack in the system. So he, he beefed all that up, and then it was still too much force for him. So then he put on a bunch of spades and stuff. So now this thing rolls, and he's probably got the best BD-5 jet in the world. Yeah, yeah, he sold it now, but, uh, man, the stories that we keep hearing. So why don't we get started now? Uh, so this is, what episode are we on now? 16 now? It depends on, depends on what order we air them in. We got, a, we got a couple backlog there that we haven't uploaded yet. Yeah, all right. And so today we have Cole Rosentretter, the CEO of Pegasus Imagery. Is that right? Correct, yeah. Okay, so why don't we get started a little bit with um, how, how this came about. Uh, so you now have a, a drone business in Edmonton, and the idea is uh, run unmanned uh, aerial vehicles, UAVs, large scale, like in the 100-pound range, I think, um, uh, for various data collection missions and, and that kind of thing, uh, police, military, whatever. Um, so what, like, where, where did that come from? Like, What's the background on that idea? Where, how did this come up? Uh, pretty much just walked right into it. Um, so my, in my previous life, uh, I spent 15 years actually stationed in Edmonton uh, with the Canadian Army. So yeah. I was in a parachute unit. Spent uh, very little time actually here in Edmonton, uh, training operations overseas. And uh, through that experience, like I absolutely loved it. And then I had a pretty serious parachuting accident. And then basically had to figure out, do I write a desk for the remainder of my, my career? I was only 32 at the time and I had another 10 or so years to go. And I was like, I don't, that's not me. So I had to go and basically find a new mission. And it basically came out right out of the gate. I was looking at all these problems that we saw. So I spent... Uh, multiple deployments like overseas in Afghanistan to, uh, an exchange down in Brazil with their special forces commando guys which was amazing and then you know the Arctic Eastern Europe and but the what, what the some of my this kind of started the company was uh, being back here so southern Alberta floods in 2013 you look at every year Alberta Saskatchewan most of the United States in the, in the west coast especially in the northwest in California just massive fires so every time uh, the military gets called out 
to go help in these disaster responses, uh, you know, we would show up and we arrive with hundreds of troops and all the equipments and we look around and we're like, okay, what's the plan? And you see a guy flying around in a single engine bird dog plane and, and they're like, well, that guy's going to radio us and tell us what the fire looks like. <laughs> like, no, where's the, like, where's the plan? And they're like, this is what we have. So it was kind of crazy because when people talk about drones, like for us, we think of like the military scale drones. And that was really what we were looking for is, you know, in California, they've done an amazing job in Oregon and Washington state. They, every year they basically have uh, the Reaper, the MQ-9s, the big military drones flying unarmed, but over top of these wildfires and floods and hurricanes and all these disasters. And so those are like 5,000 pound full size. Yeah, they're, they're huge. Uh, like, five to 15,000 depending. Yeah. So they're, they're big. And what they do is they provide that real time information and they've started being used domestically to help in this disaster response capacity. And so for us, we looked around and we re I realized pretty quickly the Canadian armed forces is exceptional, but not ideally equipped and the very limited amount of uh, remotely piloted aircraft that we have here in Canada, they're not used for this. Yeah. And it, Which is probably budget limited. Hugely. Yeah. yeah. And so when you look at the, at the absolute problem and the tragedy, when you have a wildfire like Fort McMurray, it's the fact that from like a first principles perspective, it essentially starts down with one problem from a fire's uh, initial start, whether that's caused by humans or lightning or, or other events f until the time it's detected. That's the critical window. So we have here in Alberta about 127 lookout towers. You know, and I always say there's like basically like one crazy person per tower for most of the season and their job is to look out on the horizon for smoke. But by the time a fire is big enough to be seen uh, from a lookout tower, if even if they're the most on like checked out person, the fire is generally at that point too big. It's going to scale rapidly and exponentially. And by the time you can even vector in a water bomber or a hell attack crew to go try and uh, put it out while it's still relatively small. It's already probably a couple football fields big. Yeah, and, and they're probably point, five hours out or something, or four hours out. Yeah, and then most fires kind of triple uh, in their first night. It's kind of a rough metric. Uh, and you look at climate change and all these things, and we just spend billions of dollars, every province, every state. We just spend billions of dollars on flooding and fire. And the crazy part is we don't forecast it in the budget because how can you budget for a major disaster like Fort McMurray, for example? So Fort McMurray uh, was in 2016 in northern northern Alberta, and that cost still is rolling around and it climbing still. But last I heard, it was about 11 billion dollars just from that one fire. So, so they had one fire for everybody listening, not from Alberta. They had one fire. It's a small town in northern Alberta, uh, oil town, lots of refineries, upgraders, that kind of thing in the area. Uh, uh, oil sands mining, big operations. It's a major economic driver for for Canada. Uh, and they had a forest fire come through the city and take out like half the city, didn't it? It took out probably about that, yeah, a huge chunk. And the crazy part, though, is um, the the entire response process, like when, fire, when wildfires right now are, are going, they're just too big. So the trick is, even if you can put thousands of people on the ground, hundreds of bulldozers, dozens and dozens of helicopters and air tanker groups, how do you coordinate all of them to be the most effective? Because right now you have people flying around essentially as a bird dog in a plane, looking out with a, with a kneeboard map in their lap, talking on two radios, one of the other planes, one of the ground. And that's how you're coordinating thousands of people. And from our experience, from my experience in the military, uh, that's, it's unacceptable. So that's really the idea of the company was we don't have to be a silver bullet for all these different things, but, uh, delivering an intelligence driven approach to helping support, 
with better information, these massive challenges and responses, that is kind of the next big mission because it truly is a national security problem. It's an economic security problem, and it threatens all of our communities. Yeah, no so, where we live. so what? So it, we know now what uh, how they they operate up there, and obviously the fire. Uh, the fire monitoring, fire uh, fighting hasn't been acu- adequate enough to save places like Fort Mac. So under with your drones, how do you see that changing? How do you see something like that uh, playing out in the future using your, your technology? Uh, well, I mean, the, the easy answer is start first by showing that we can deliver information to the, the air tanker groups and the helicopters and the bulldozers and the firefighters who are out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. There's an incredible parallel between uh, being from a dismounted infantry unit where you're carrying heavy packs all day through through the woods and it sucks versus, you know, to carrying heavy packs going through the woods and it sucks, but you're now just called a firefighter. And it's a huge problem. It's a huge challenge you're facing. It's complex. It's coordination is the number one problem. And then the lower level of coordination that you actually have, the slower your response can be because you're not going to put hundreds of people out into the woods by themselves. You have to have coordination measures and then because... The, the speed of wildfire, like they don't just sit there and burn. They, they move quite quickly and the bigger they get, the faster they move and they're unpredictable. So how we really see it as an initial step in is providing that 24 hour surveillance and that real time information video feed along with other different types of data to allow emergency managers to have the information that they need to make smarter, faster, uh, higher quality decisions. Gotcha. Now, does that only uh, apply after a fire is started, after a fire is spotted, or is that uh, do you anticipate having drones up continuously operating, monitoring areas to see to find find these fires before they get big enough? Uh, definitely. So part of the part of the challenge in all of this is um, fires are natural, so we should be having or letting wildfires burn. The problem is we're not very good at starting them for controlled burns because we're we're not really good at putting them out. So there's a huge, obviously, hesitation in starting a fire and then being liable if that fire rolls into a town like Jasper or like Grand Prairie. So what we end up doing is we we have really focused for the last 40 or 50 years listening to Smokey the Bear saying, you know, report forest fires and they're bad. But in reality, they're natural. And what we've done is we've kind of tipped the scales one way where the, the fuel density is really high in the forest. And there's a huge amount of fuel for the fire to, to quickly burn through. And then it's just a bigger problem. So... For us, part of that would be about not just flying around looking for wildfires, but collecting information on a scale that is uh, higher accuracy than satellites, So, but basically on the same scale as a satellite. Regular patrols and not just visually looking for things, but automating that process and then being smarter about it. You know, Having drones basically follow uh, an electrical weather front. We, we know that electrical weather generally starts forest fires through lightning strikes. We can fly through and basically police that up right after they kind of happen. Gotcha. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. Um, uh, BC has now uh, uh, basically changed their their for, uh, forest fire uh, policy. Before they used to fight everything, and over the past couple of years here, uh, my understanding is they've changed that up. So now they're only fighting ones that are are a threat to property or or, or cities and whatnot. So obviously, that's uh, I, I hear a lot of that uh, in what you're saying there. Especially, uh, are you able to um, uh, to detect kind of areas that might be more uh, vulnerable to to forest fire uh, around cities, uh, places? that might have uh, have a lot of uh, old growth that might have not have had time to actually burn through and burn out? Yeah, so there's a, a big program in Canada called Fire Smart Canada. And what they really focus on right now is just outside of communities, you essentially go out and have a survey done uh, with some pretty old old approaches. But 
the idea is calculate what the fuel density is and then have people, uh, com- private sector companies contracted to go in and basically remove all that undergrowth or basically you know, lower the fuel density, reduce the risk. And there's a couple other programs that go along with it uh, about hardening houses and communities, but that type of approach works really well, but you can only really do it right now around a community. We're looking at almost like that fire smart approach, but the entire forest itself should really be part of that fire smart program. It's just about collecting data at the scale that makes it, uh, you know, economically viable and then having it, uh, basically repeatable. You can, if you're going to get LIDAR of a, of a couple million acres to do forest density, you're probably not gonna be able to do that once every 20 years because of the cost, because right now manned aircraft or satellites doing it, are going to give you different types of information yeah. and the, the accuracy that you need has to be done lower to the ground. And if it's uh, a manned aircraft company out there doing it, really high cost for operation. Oh yeah. man, that's so many hours. Yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously the, the big question there is uh, that a lot of people will be asking is uh, obviously satellites are able to get you a massive swath over a huge, huge area. What advantage does a, does a drone have over just launching a few satellites? Uh, well, two things really. Uh, one is accuracy. So satellites cover a huge amount of area, but their accuracy is, is you know, sometimes uh, depending on what you're willing to pay for, uh, pretty low. And that's driven by distance from the measuring surface, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. if you're in low Earth orbit, you're about 760 kilometers plus up there. It's a long ways. And there's a lot of cloud cover in the way and weather and different things that affect it, right? Atmospherics. Yeah. So if you want to get big area coverage, that works really well. But if you want to get the accuracy, that's kind of where satellites are, are you know, they'll eventually improve. And uh, currently, though, you know, it's for what engineering grade LIDAR and different types of data need. Uh, that's It's not there yet. Yeah. Well, you also have to wait for the satellite to come around, right? We're with a drone. If there's a storm coming through, you just launch it. Same, like within an hour. Yeah, exactly. And the other the other critical thing is uh, unless you're a government launching your own satellite the size of a yellow school bus, you're not going to get full motion video and you're not going to have it in a geosynchronous orbit where it can basically sit there and stare. Yeah. So now uh, the the primary driver for us is actually two things. One is that full motion video. So daylight or infrared, the same thing from a police helicopter or a a military drone yeah. you're probably thinking of. That's what we. That's pri- one of our primary kind of services that we deliver right now. And the other one is actually just being uh, a repeater for radios on the ground. When we end up talking to people in public safety, the number one question that always uh, comes up is, you know, hey, what do you guys use for a radio? So it basically allows us to coordinate and help help them improve their coordination by being a, essentially a flying radio tower for a repeater. Yeah, well, yeah, and that makes sense because you could you could not only do the fire mission, but you could you could fill your time with other missions as well, and the drone could be up there doing other missions such as the full motion video for police or whatever or surveillance, whatever. Uh, and then if there's a fire or a lightning strike in the summertime or something, change the sensor and launch it. But the drone, the pilot, and everything's already there. Yeah, the crew, exactly. The so what is a what kind of space does it actually take to to launch one of these? And do you guys anticipate having uh, launch sites uh, all across kind of Canada or North America to actually uh, get these things up there quickly? Uh, yeah. So our business model is actually very simple. Uh, the technology is kind of dual use. So there's a obviously a defense application for it, but on the commercial side, which is I think where we we started the company to basically make a, a big difference in, is democratizing access to data at a, at a lower cost. So. Uh, the aircraft are kind of the Rosetta Stone everybody wants to talk about, but really for the end user, it's data. 
So rather than us building and selling them to like an energy company or a mining or a forestry company, then having them try and go and figure out hiring people, training them, fighting the regulator, which is super fun. Um, all these things, we just do it as a service. So from the business standpoint, it's product solution fit. So our drones, uh, we're working to get them uh, certified for autonomous, autonomous flight. So that allows us now to not have a one pilot flying one drone remotely. We can basically have one pilot managing 20 or 30 that are out that day, collecting different information for different use cases in markets. Yeah. So he'd just step in and do like a, uh, he'd step in and get involved if the drone has an issue, if it flags an issue or something. Yeah, exactly. Then he can interfere and take over manual or whatever, get the drone out of the situation and let the other 19 keep flying. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's kind of the big difference between us and a lot of like drone manufacturers or drone service providers is, uh, we're not just building drones. We're solving the technology barrier to flying beyond visual line of sight. And to do that, you just have to do the, the usual two things. You have to be able to detect and then avoid, you know, other drones or birds or most importantly, manned aircraft. So for us, like we actually had to build our own because, you know, Lockheed Martin wouldn't sell us one. So we had to uh, have a really talented team of engineers design and manufacture our own here in Alberta to actually carry our own uh, detect and avoid system. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk yeah. about the design of this thing. Yeah, well, let's talk about the design of that uh, detect and avoid system. Um, so what exactly kind of technology is it? Is it like a radar that you're running on there or is it you're just listening for ADSB or what are you what are you doing on that? Uh, well, the easy answer is we went to Transport Canada last year to get introduced to them and basically say, this is our approach. And they said, listen, if it's ADSB, we're not going to do it. Like the latency is too low, et cetera, et cetera. What about this technology? No, no. If you guys are going to try and pitch us on that, we're not going to take that either. Like, we're like, no. Uh, it's an airborne radar system. They're like, okay, we've been waiting for you, but you guys are about three years ahead of where we have any regulations. So what do you guys want to do? And so we have a, a partnership, an official partnership right now with Transport Canada, uh, the National Research Council, and uh, some of our government and uh, commercial partners and stakeholders. And what we're doing right now is we're essentially working with Transport Canada to help provide them uh, real-time testing data from our flights to help show them that this radar system uh, doesn't just feed us back information for a pilot to make a decision. We're taking that radar system, a couple other different types of sensors, actually onboard the aircraft and uh, putting a bunch of artificial intelligence behind all of that, along, basically alongside the autopilot to allow it to be able to autonomously navigate, detect, track, and then avoid uh, problems in the air or potential hazards. So that's our approach. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so obviously you're using AI. Where are you getting your kind of training data? Obviously you got to be doing uh, some flight flights with that to you actually train it before you actually send it up in the drone. Uh, for us, it's actually really simple. Um, we essentially have an on policy uh, labeling machine for our aircraft. Every time we fly, we're literally just collecting massive amounts of data that we're going to use to help improve what we're doing. And if you look at all the other data sets that are out there, like ground-based radar systems, uh, helping track larger weather fronts and different stuff like that. The aircraft is essentially labeling all that training data for us because we have what the forecast looks like. And then we have the real time, you know, maybe they, they say winds are at, you know, six knots at 180. But in reality, where we're flying at that exact time, they're 12 knots at, you know, 195. We're helping basically label all that data to make a, make ourselves more accurate and, and better. Gotcha. What about the hardware mechanical side of these things so the the drone is is composite right right yeah it's made out of uh, it's all carbon fiber 98 percent carbon fiber right so it has a body and then it has conventional looking wings 
uh, and then two, what do you call them, booms? Yep. So on each side, there's a boom that extends forward of the fuselage. Uh, well, about, what, 30% span from the fuselage, you've got a boom on each side, and the boom extends quite far forward, like to the nose of the fuselage, and then all quite far back, too, far behind the fuselage, uh, I guess, trailing edge, mm-hmm. to a tail. Is that right? Yeah. And then there's a, there's a, a tail kind of like a P-38 Lightning, um, where there's a, there's a conventional-looking elevator, and then two rudders, one on each side. Yeah, exactly. And along those booms, we have four electric rotors, and this allows us to take off and land vertically. So the reason for that is really simple. There's a, there's a really big application for being able to you know, not need a runway. So if we're not uh, yet able to fly beyond visual line of sight, we still have to basically drive, uh, taxi the drone to work. Yeah. So we actually have a, an old converted ambulance that we're, we're going we're gonna to upgrade here pretty soon, but it's been, a, it's been awesome. We've been driving around most of Western Canada for the last two years in a unmarked white ambulance and we have the drone in the back and we actually pull the drone out put the wings on do the pre-flight check and have it up in the air and then from inside the bus we actually have a ground control station so we have a pilot station and a sensor operator station and the aircraft provide that all the real-time uh, control and video feed down to the bus and then inside of that then that's actually where we put it out to the internet for kind of the end user to, to have in real time through like a secure internet portal so if you're a conservation officer or you're working on a search and rescue, uh, it doesn't really matter where in the world you are. If you have a cell phone signal, you can basically log in if you have the right permissions and watch the video feed in real time. And what, what's the lag on it? Like, are we talking milliseconds or a couple seconds or what? Almost none. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that is really simple. It's not to try and help sell it. It's to try and give decision makers who are in the field and who are supporting the people in the field back at you know an emergency operations center or maybe you're on the Baham- maybe you're in the Bahamas on a cruise ship, maybe not now with COVID, but <laughs> you know wherever you are uh, on vacation or whatever, you can basically log in and see like, okay, I'm a decision maker, I'm a leader. What is going on in the field? And it's not about you micromanaging. It's about okay, I understand. I don't have to have somebody pick up a phone and try and you know play telephone tag and verbally explain this to me. Uh, you know, make a word picture for me even, to understand. Even if it's a big construction site, you could do that. Anything, yeah. So uh, for our drone, our drone uh, listeners out there, uh, you have the it's typical kind of quadcopter style on there, but you also have the conventional wings. Uh, what's the advantage of having that conventional wings? Uh, so best of both worlds. So we have the the flexibility to take off and land anywhere uh, within about a five meter accuracy, uh, and then we take off about a hundred feet. Then we transition to the main engine, a, a pusher, and then we fly like a regular airplane from there. Gotcha. So is the, uh, does the having conventional flight capabilities, does that give you longer range, longer duration? Uh, what, what, what big advantages does that actually have? Uh, endurance and, and speed. So flying like a regular airplane is, is the more efficient way to do it, obviously. And this allows us to right now have about between a six to a 10 hour endurance at about 90 to hundred kilometers an hour. Yeah. So you've got a, is it a diesel kerosene burning engine or is it uh, a gas electric? Oh, it's yeah. gas. Yeah. So the aircraft actually has an onboard 500 watt generator. And so when we take off, uh, it, we actually are able to recharge the electric batteries we use for the VTOL system. And the cool thing is that VTOL system is actually, uh, our emergency backup. So if we're flying and we hit a big, strong gust and it's, we're in a turn or something like that, and we have a wing over, don't like it, but we've seen it. We've seen it enough times to know that it's 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 possible. Much, it's rock solid. Uh, the recovery. It's essentially a an a ready made recovery system. So rather than 
you know, immediately punching out a parachute um, and then having the aircraft basically drift through the air and we don't know where it's going to really land. Uh, this allows us to essentially have the aircraft recover itself and it, it does it within one or two seconds, even at full speed. So how far over can you actually get it, get it then? Can you get it actually like completely upside down and have those rotors rewrite the system? Yeah, exactly. So we, the, the autopilot itself carries like a list of parameters. You know, if your bank or your pitch angle is above a certain degree, then the VTOL system basically gets activated. Yeah. So it'll trip. Yeah. The gas motor will stop the yeah. forward thrust and it will convert into a VTOL mode. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds to me like the reason you don't run straight VTOL is the, the energy consumption to keep the aircraft in the air is quite high with VTOL compared to a, a conventional airplane. Yeah, exactly. We want the best of both worlds, and there's not always going to be a runway around when we need it. So the VTOL system allows us to essentially have a, a vertical airport concept. Yeah. So we can take off and land like a helicopter, and then... Uh, but we get all the benefits of being a, a fixed wing at that point. And the long duration loiter at the speed and everything else that goes with that. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Well, Does it help? Uh, Go ahead, Brian. Well, sorry. Well, how, long, uh, how long can actually stay uh, afloat on just the VTOL system? Uh, you mentioned that you were able to regenerate the battery on that. But if you were to be uh, stuck in a situation where you couldn't fly uh, horizontally, how long could it actually stay afloat just on that? Uh, a couple minutes. So pretty pretty short, but, but enough that uh, you can get up and get moving. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Yeah, we're we have a really cool team of engineers. Um, like I'm from the, my background's from the military. Uh, John, our COO, he's former military as well. But we've we've actually got a really good team. We've got commercial aviation uh, pilots who work on our operations team. So they understand uh, the rules of the air. They understand aircraft, and you know everybody basically helps each other out. So the engineers will see something differently than than I will or John or or the pilots. So we all basically work together. It's it's a pretty, it's a pretty much a big collider every day. So from an advertising perspective, so we know that this drone can, can, sorry, how long can it stay in the air? Five hours, you D said? Depending on the payload, between six to 10. Okay. So, um, what about payload capacity? Like how big of a payload can, can you take in terms of dimensions and then what weight? Uh, so the default sensor that we have is a, an, uh, daylight and an infrared camera gimbal. And every one of our aircraft carry that. And then be underneath the belly, we've made a, a universal payload attachment system. So we can carry a LiDAR sensor. We could carry a synthetic aperture radar pod. Um, we can carry photogrammetry. We can do a bunch of different types of sensors. And for us, we didn't design the aircraft to be a silver bullet for just one thing. We designed it so that it can, we just put the sensor on, connect it in, and then uh, send it out on its way. But the reason why every single one carries this expensive daylight and infrared cameras that what we want is we want every single time a drone's in the air that it can essentially be a first responder so if there's an amber alert or a missing hiker or a search and rescue or an officer safety issue right like alberta's canada's big uh there's not a, we have really high quality police but they don't have a whole lot of them right you can't mass produce quality so what they need is they need a tool so if we're flying a right-of-way inspection for a major energy company for example and there's an officer safety issue, that aircraft in our network, the near, the closest one, we're, op, we're building into the contracts that this public safety clause that, you know, that officer safety or that Amber Alert or that search and rescue, that nearest aircraft is now going to turn and go and help. Can and these drones be armed? Uh, it's not our gig, to be honest. I mean, there's a huge market, obviously, in the defense sector, but what really counts is the network. So there's a there's a big shift going on between having surveillance drones and also being armed 
when in reality, 99, 98% of the time that they're up there, they're just collecting uh, surveillance and reconnaissance information. The, the actual weapon employment is a tiny fraction and putting both systems together make them extremely, extremely expensive. So for us... Um, yeah, so not, it's like dead weight for 99% of the time. Yeah, and it's not even just dead weight. It's a really, really expensive, like low, low, low quantity aircraft that requires a lot of people in the back end essentially watching, like most... And security. Yeah, and for us... Um, on the military application, that's really not what, what we're what we're heading down to. I mean, the information is is you know data is the new oil, and in the military context, uh, providing uh, providing information and and being able to give militaries the right tools to do that, collect that information. That's really what we want to do, because if we start straying one way too far, it's really not not where we want to take the company. The uh, the the weapons and Aside, deploying things from the from the drones, though, it's entirely what we want to do, uh, just in a different context. So you look at COVID samples, remote communities. It's not a buzzword. Like a lot of the places that really need COVID samples and testing, terrible roads, right? So uh, like Zipline's are a great drone company out of, out of uh, California that moved to Africa, set up a huge drone network of basically flying these all-electric uh, fixed-wing drones, and then parachute about three pounds of blood supplies or whatever medical supplies there are, you know, remote parts in Africa and Ghana and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge opportunity to help, uh, on the humanitarian and also on the, like the logistics side, but less so about becoming, you know, the Amazon of, of Canada. It's more so for us about like pet, like commercial drone delivery is probably in, in my estimate, like a fraction of what the unmanned or autonomous aircraft market really can, can address. It's all about the data. And if you're dropping off a shoebox full of Nikes, like there's a business model for that, but it's got to be done at this huge, crazy volume. And that's where Amazon is, and these other companies like UPS, they're, they're going to, that's, that's the spot that they play in. We want to work on uh, the information side. So, so speaking about uh, uh, Amazon and whatnot, I know Amazon, I believe it was Amazon or was it, uh, there was, there was one of the big companies was, was doing some drone testing up here a couple of years ago out, uh, out near the, um, uh, what's that military base just out outside Wayne of town Wright. here? Wainwright, yeah, uh, doing some testing out there. Um, uh, obviously, their their testing process they had to get a whole bunch of government uh, clearances and whatnot. What's your guys's uh, kind of testing process here going into the future? How are you guys going to be uh, utilizing uh, the area basically to 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 test your drones? Um, are, maybe not Wainwright. But I think uh, in southern Alberta, there's the foremost UAS range. Okay, maybe that's where they were. They yeah, were um, oh, and yeah, and just north of foremost is uh, Canadian Forces Base Suffield, a pretty big uh, installation. Uh, we actually uh, have a land use agreement with the Department of National Defense. So uh, between that and the, the three different special flight operations certificates that we have as a company, uh, we can fly in any Class F airspace uh, in, in the country up to the top of the box. So if that's wildfire in 3,000 feet, or if that's you know up at Cold Lake uh, in the Cold Lake Air Weapons Range, where it's you know basically almost unlimited, we have we have the permissions and the land use agreement and all these things kind of in place. So for us for the for the training, what we generally do is uh, like last year we did over 2,000 kilometers uh, in beyond visual line of sight uh, flights, and that was all in Class F airspace. And when we say beyond line of sight, we're not talking how people kind of play word games. We're saying like we took off, we had a visual observer watching the takeoff and then the drones, you know, 18 to 25 kilometers kind of away on the other side of the training area. And basically just, we did a whole bunch of our testing kind of just off to the side. We don't spend a whole lot of time actually on, on marketing and, and really hype. 
I guess. Mm-hmm. Like we're, it's just about execution. So for our, our development phase, like we're, I generally like to say like we go about 30,000 RPM pretty much every day. It's been like this for at least the last two years. Gotcha. And that's, re- that's really it. So our development phase is, is quite fast. Gotcha. Now, uh, you admit you talked a bit about your, uh, uh detect and avoid system. Um, is that fully operational and, and what can, uh, GA pilots, cause a lot of us are out there flying around and we're not going to see a drone until it's too late. And obviously we've all heard, heard horror stories. I've got friends who have, uh, come really close to hitting drones. Uh, so what, uh, what are you guys doing right now to kind of prevent, uh, collisions with GA aircraft, especially when you're flying uh, beyond visual line of sight? Uh, talk is probably the one thing. Um, there's a there's a couple different there's really only two parallels. Uh, one is we're all eventually going to get to share integrated airspace. We're all going to be in the same airspace in a few years. Uh, whether we whether general aviation, some people don't think it's going to happen, or some people think it will and they're they're nervous. The only way we're, we're going to get forward is if we talk, because the regulator has to basically stand between you know emerging technology and opportunities and general av- aviation. I mean, COVID has essentially almost broken the back of the commercial aviation industry. We're, uh, we're in a weird time where there's a huge opportunity for technology to help carry the load economically and logistically. We all have to figure it out. So for us, I mean, for general aviation, like that's, this is why we love coming out to Villeneuve. Uh, like we're sitting here at, at Villeneuve Airport just outside of Edmonton. And uh, we absolutely love it. Like our entire approach, it was essentially turned 90 degrees in the last month and a half we were basically planning on doing our own thing finding a spot in uncontrolled airspace setting up shop you know eventually working from there staying well clear of manned aviation to avoid any potential you know conflicts or anything like that but we've met this amazing community here and it, it i mean i'm not being too over the top here like it's it's truly cool that everybody here even potential competitors have said you guys gotta you guys gotta move out here so this is definitely on on the on the short list for us to you know, probably on a later podcast, maybe yeah. uh, talk to you guys more about once we're kind of through that, that process. But I yeah, mean, so, so right now you're very segregated, right? Like, so Transport Canada has said for everybody listening, that's worried about what they're hearing right now about large drones flying around airliners right now, you cannot fly outside of class F airspace, which is restricted airspace for every, every other aircraft. And you cannot fly what over 500 feet. So we're, in uncontrolled airspace, Class G, uh, we can't go over 400 feet, and manned aviation is not supposed to go below 500. That 100, that 100 foot separator, unless they're doing low level work. Right. Uh, we've done a lot of work in beyond line of sight in Class F, and uh, what we're looking at right now is expanding that to this partnership that we're doing with Transport Canada and the National Research Council and others, uh, essentially helping them uh, pave the way for eventually. Uh, integrating the airspace and not just on a one-off a kind of, Oh, that was interesting. They had a drone at an airport more like, Oh, this is just the new normal now. And for general aviation, we're all going to have to meet in the middle at some point. So if it's uh, people who are concerned about uh, sharing the airspace or whatever, whatever, whatever else it is. I mean, for example, like us, we have a, we have an airborne radar system and a, a couple other different types of sensors on the aircraft. And we've essentially stacked the deck to make us literally the safest thing besides like a military fighter jet flying around. Right. So, so out here at Villeneuve, if you, if you were given permission to fly in say controlled airspace, you would be operating your drones exactly the same as a, as a standard general aviation weekend warrior in a Cessna. You'll have normal radio communication. Is that right? 
so the rules for us are exactly the same rules for general aviation. Yeah, so you'll be ADSB, mode C transponder, um, aviation radios, VHF radios, uh, coming from the drone. So you'll be operating that thing exactly the way as any other Cessna would. And then to get around the whole VFR, the V and VFR, which is the visual flight rules part, uh, the the whole uh, see and avoid aspect, you have your onboard collision avoidance radar, which does the same thing as a pilot's eyes except better because it can now see underneath and behind the airplane. Well, we can also see at night perfectly. We can see through smoke, fog, low visibility conditions. So essentially it's like having x-ray vision in the, in the analogy, right? Like if you're a VFR pilot, we can worry like you put it. Um, we can see you. And the trick for all this is we will always give way to manned aircraft. Like that's that's never going to be a thing where, where there's competition. So if there's a, a Cessna pilot or somebody out flying a Cub and they're, they're maybe they don't see us, we'll definitely see them and then we'll we'll move around them. They may not even know that we're out there until later, but the idea is make sure that we do 100% what we need to do as far as that detect and then avoid. Yeah, so you really operate on a zero tolerance policy when it comes to near collisions, near misses, that kind of thing. Yeah, so as far as like uh, getting close to a potential like K-Doors event, like a near miss, like we'll we'll do everything in our power, including crashing drones if we have to, to make sure that nobody ever gets put in danger. Was that Asimov's uh, laws of uh, of robotics? <laughs> do no harm? Yeah, do what no harm. Oh, he's got uh, was it three three laws a robot can't do harm to human and uh, must sac- basically it says that a robot must sacrifice itself to uh, to pr- prolong the life of humans. So yeah, basically like the Robocop laws. Yeah, yeah. Man, okay, let let's back up a bit. So we've got these huge drones now that will hopefully be well not huge but pretty big, uh, significant sized drones that will hopefully soon be flying locally around with other GA airplanes. Um, but let's talk a bit more about the people and your background. Let, let's back way up to early on in the military. So you were, you were infantry, right? Yeah. And what did you do in the infantry? Uh, generally, it was uh, I did a lot of walking. Uh, I was lucky <laughs> enough to get punished and sometimes fall out of planes, and then I, I liked that a lot, so I ended up uh, going down that, that pipeline and and working on um, becoming a parachute instructor. Like, did you carry a, a gun? Were you on the front line? Yep. Yeah. So the military is like the last hundred yard. The the infantry is like the last hundred yards of what most people kind of think that the military really does. Yeah. There's a huge logistical supply chain, and you know, there's a, people that do and volunteer to do amazing things in combat support and uh, the Air Force and the Navy, and but all of it really kind of centers around, you know, eventually somebody's got to close that last hundred yards. It sounds kind of corny, but that's essentially it. Yeah. So, and and I think I heard somewhere that there's what nine logistics people for every one frontline soldier. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty big tail, for sure. So okay, so uh, you you started early on, I'm guessing, when you're maybe in your low twenties. Yeah, actually. So I graduated in 2000, and then my dad, being from a construction background, and uh, I, you know, raising me right, said, okay. What do you want to do next? And I didn't know what I wanted to take at university or college. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna obviously get out and move out, get a trade. Yeah. So I was actually working at uh, in Fort Saskatchewan at Shell Scofford on 9/11, <laughs> and I was like, just made complete sense. Like it was not even really like a decision. It just made sense. Like uh, obviously a huge thing had kind of happened at the Pearl Harbor of our of our time, and I was like, oh, well, I'm young, I'm I'm healthy. Like this seems like the right thing to do. So join join the military. 
and then you know just hope this whole thing isn't over by the time i actually get through training and everything else like that yeah and it turns out i was off by a, a couple decades and know. well where did it take you did it did you end up going to the middle east yeah where, so, where were you deployed uh so i did i did three deployments in in southern afghanistan so 2005 2007 and then uh halfway through 2009 and 2010 over the over the winter and then uh amazing experiences like super tough but i mean you get you pay to play right we or we got paid to play so to speak i gotta go i got a, a chance an opportunity to go three times to war with like a, a total brotherhood uh go do something that actually matters um and uh you know between that uh, spent a lot of time in in swamps like a spoiler a swamp in poland is the exact same swamp in wainwright <laughs> like or new brunswick it, it's all the same it just sucks so i got a chance to kind of go all over the place uh, i spent a lot of time in across canada on training including in the arctic that was that was something pretty cool because i was actually in brazil i was like parachuting in brazil and then two months later i was falling out of a plane into, into the high arctic and it was like negative 70 on exit at a thousand feet and the first thing that happened was my goggles that i had on completely like got like frosted frosted completely and i'm like this is terrible so i took my <laughs> you know i took my goggles off and obviously with all the sun it's like super bright and i'm like this is even worse because <laughs> now it's like negative reflecting 70 and i'm like reflecting i can't see i'm like going half blind i'm like oh cool i probably only got another couple hundred feet to figure out what the hell has to happen next and meanwhile there's hundreds of other guys in the air all basically dangling on these round parachutes uh, all all around me and i'm like this is awesome i'm blind surrounded by other falling projectiles and below me is you know a frozen drop zone on the arctic sea i'm like this is this is great yeah 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 really really happy i i decided to keep keep going on hard courses to get to this point great life choices yeah yeah but you know it was truly one of these co the coolest things i've ever done um like uh the military gives you like these amazing opportunities i got like the arctic one for example um you know, Game of Thrones is over on TV now, but if everybody remembers, like, looking north of the wall, where it's just white and, like, like volcanic rock, yeah, that was it. And we got a chance to, like, uh, basically spend a couple weeks up there. It was all, the, the exercise was actually part of a, a simulated airliner crash. So, like, we have these amazingly highly qualified guys who are, like, search and rescue technicians, and they're the ones in the orange jumpsuits who will, like, jump out of a plane uh, and then parachute down to, like, a plane crash. And then basically keep that person alive until somebody can eventually figure out how to get them out. Yeah. Get them all out. And uh, a couple of my friends are Sartax and they're like the, the biggest studs in the world. Uh, <laughs> but the, the idea was a plane crash went down. There's a whole bunch of survivors, obviously more than just a couple of Sartax can, can handle. So we would get called out. We went to the Edmonton International, got on the Hercs, and then basically flew four hours, four and a half hours north. Got dressed in flight with all the equipment, which is a whole process. Like I think a lot of people kind of miss the point that military parachuting like there's there's two types there's like the free fall with the oxygen and the night vision goggles and you're basically like a really big version of a civilian parachute and then there's a dope on a rope where the whole objective is to get as many people out of planes and on the ground as fast as possible without you know a really high attrition rate so yeah. that's that's what i did it was um it was phenomenal so it was uh it was a cool opportunity for sure and then while we're up there as part of the simulated crash there was it was uh it was a, a cool thing to see all the truly like i mean isolated people like in the middle of nowhere and right. talking to some of the bush pilots that that kind of fly in and out of these small little places like kukruk like there's more people uh that fell out of planes that day than they'd ever seen in the history of their little hamlet <laughs> and it was cool because the school teacher was actually uh, an old polish airborne guy who then like moved to canada and took this position way up north so 
you know, he had a frosted tear in his eye when, when the planes came over and we all jumped out and I was talking to him later on a couple of weeks later, uh, when we're getting ready to leave and, you know, it's just a really cool thing. And I think part of that experience has really helped shape me, like seeing different, you know, not seeing Airdrie or, you know, Mayor Thorpe, but seeing like truly other, like the distant far reach of the country. Yeah. A real Canadian town. Like, wow. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So that, what, what was that? Like around the time of your accident? Uh, just prior to? Just prior, yeah. That was basically, um, so my accident uh, was December of 2014. So, what happened? Uh, well, I was actually uh, teaching on a on a parachuting course. So we had a bunch of uh, new students learning how to uh, uh, parachute stack line. So you do five, five you do basically two weeks of, of, uh, of not learning. It's just all, all about us reinforcing the lesson that they need, the muscle memory that they need. And then that's the ground phase and then the, the jump, jump week uh, is the is, is the third week so they do five jumps uh, the first one is no equipment in the daytime pretty easy and then second one uh, building up to equipment and then the fourth of the five jumps is a nighttime jump uh, sometimes they, they flop back and forth but the the point of the exercise was essentially taking all these new students up there so we were jumping out the side doors on the back of the of a out of a herc and uh, the air force guy standing behind me the load master uh, his job was basically just stand nice and close behind me and tell me uh, instructions or, or information from the pilot up front. Cause I'm not wearing a, a headset. I'm going to jump out once all the students yeah. have gone out. So he just kind of made an accident, dropped a, basically a, a comms cable, like what we have kind of set up here, like an extension cord in my feet. And, uh, so all the students went out safely. Like a coil of communications cable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he dropped his roll of comms cord in my feet as I went out and basically got lassoed. So I went to go jump out and basically right away felt the tug on my leg and was like, that's it. Yeah. So I, banged off the side of the plane, pretty much, uh, like blew my helmet off. And then after that, uh, th then I got towed behind the plane for, and it wasn't a long time, but it was about three or four seconds, which in all honesty is a long, really long time. Yeah. And, so, uh, so for those that, that don't have a full understanding of what he's talking about, you're in a Hercules, a four engine, uh, military transport airplane up high going really fast. How fast were you going when yeah. this happened? Well, we, we slowed quite down. We slowed right down to about 130 knots or, you know, 250, 260 kilometers an hour. So if you imagine jumping out at 260 kilometers an hour into the wind, there's a big blast that pushes you. Right. And then right after that, I basically went from 200, 130 knots one way to 130 knots the other way. Yeah. So if you, in the highway, if you open your window and you stick your hand out the window, your hand gets pushed back, right? That's 60 or 50 knots. Yeah. So you're doing 130, so two and a half times that. Yeah. Uh, so, but with your whole body. Yeah. So then when you well, got lassoed. By my, by, my, by my ankle, actually. So it was right. wrapped around my ankle. So it was, it was pretty bad. It was only like three or four seconds, but the, and then eventually the cable snapped. And the reason I, I didn't see it is, um, you know, in the plane, we keep the lights down low, like pretty, like very low. And then er everything was just a normal night. So one guy made a mistake and, uh, you know, it's not his fault. Really, it's just, you know, that's just the way the world works. Yeah. So cable, uh, eventually the cable broke after three or four seconds. And then I had a, another series of unfortunate events. My, I was actually on my back. So I was lucky enough that I wasn't too close to the plane where I would have basically got beat to death against the side of it. But I wasn't too far away from the plane where my static line would have deployed my main parachute while I was still being dragged underneath. Yeah. So static line is your, so when you all line up in the Hercules, right? Yeah. Um, everybody clips on, like they clip their ripcord basically uh, onto the, a cable. 
in the airplane called a static line, right? Is that right? Yeah. So if you Overhead. think about it like this, um, you're going to clip, you're going to attach your uh, basically through the static line. It's essentially like carries like a bag like around your parachute. So when you jump out, the the hook stays on that cable inside the plane. And as you l start obviously gaining speed and getting away from the plane. Exit, leaving the airplane. It, it pulls the parachute off of your back. So right. it helps like rapidly deploy a parachute. So, so then the, 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 the person jumping out, the paratrooper, does not have to pull a ripcord. Exactly. Like you'd naturally expect a parachuter to do. Yeah, and, and, you, and, you don't and you're not supposed to because the idea is really simple. Get as, for static line, you want to get people out of the, as many people out of the plane as concentrated as possible on the ground as fast as possible. So you, there's no time to look and arch and pull on a ripcord. It's basically, you know, you have a pretty regimented drill to get out the plane, try and stay as small as possible so you don't have the wind really push you around too much or anything gets loose. And basically, you know, you'll feel the parachute get ripped off your back. And then, you know, within about two seconds, you're under canopy. Right. So, and so that's, well, that's why they call it the dope on a rope. That rope is the, you know, it's the dope on that rope that yeah. pulls them off. Yeah. Self-deploying cargoes, what the Air Force used to used to call us. <laughs> yeah. So, so everybody would clip, they'd stand in a line in the, in the Hercules clip on when the time comes and then the light would go green the door would open and everybody would pile out one after the other and they just run out the door there's a there's a process to it but we yeah basically it's uh it's super high energy like if you can imagine you've probably been wearing essentially like a a series of really tightened down straps and a bunch of heavy heavy equipment strapped all over you and you're probably sitting around for a couple hours now then you have to walk which is merciless with all this equipment dangling off of you, like a hundred pounds or so, like your parachutes, just your main and reserve are like 44 pounds. Yeah. So then you have to walk out to the plane, uh, get on it, get seated down. It's a huge process. So from a parachute instructor kind of standpoint, or even just a jump master, just somebody who normally doesn't teach, but dispatches, you spend a lot of time mothering people, I guess is the easy, you know, you spend a lot of time and love and, you know, putting, yeah. putting the pain into people to, to learn the right muscle memory to jump out of a plane. But it's not like uh, skydiving. Like there's no time for somebody to, you know, check an altimeter. It's just going to happen really fast. And the most dangerous part is it happens so quickly, and people are so packed together that we have to really make sure that guys understand exactly what to do in like these different kind of situations. You know, somebody's too close, you have to do this. Somebody's too, you know, different things like that. So it was. Uh, I'm I was, of all the things that happened that night, the number one thing that I'm most happy about is that it was me. That was like my 125th jump. So it was well seasoned. That's why I was an instructor. Yeah. And if it was one of the students, they were in full equipment. I wasn't. It would have been probably a much different story. So. Anyways. Oh, so you did not have all the the cargo gear on in between your legs or whatever? No, no. I was I was teaching, which is like a, a pretty fun way to to jump out without all the all the extra like actual army like infantry equipment strapped all over. Yeah. So when when your leg hooked that cord, and if you had all that gear on, man, you could have lost your leg. I would have a hundred percent lost everything. Because you're you're you accelerated so fast or, or decelerated, whichever way you want to think about it, yeah. away from the airplane, and then came right back up to aircraft speed when that cord caught. Um, without, if you had another sixty pounds on worth of cargo, that w times whatever G's you pulled when you accelerated like that, yeah, that would have ripped your leg off. It would have yeah. tore it right out of the socket. Yeah, and the um, my brother-in-law's a math teacher, yeah, and he's like, "Oh, he tried to do the math." I'm like, "I." do not want to hear this math. I just, am, <laughs> like, I don't want to hear about the G's. I'm like, you know, I'm just, I was really lucky. I was in probably the best shape of my life at that, at that point. And you know, at that point it's just a game of like, 
you know, hundreds of seconds or inches or millimeters. So let's go back to that. You're at night. You're how, how high are you? A thousand. Yeah. So you're really low. You're dangling underneath a, a C-130 in flight um, right after your leg was almost torn out of its socket. Then what happened? And you got really lucky because the static line hadn't deployed your your uh, pilot chute, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, people always ask, like, oh, did you, your whole life flash before you? No, nothing. I basically, as soon as I felt that tug on my leg, as I was going out the door. I was like, oh, well, that's it. And then while I was for those couple seconds, I was actually underneath the plane. I'm looking, you know, yet the drill is to get as tight as you physically can. And then I'm like looking over my reserve at my feet and I'm looking at the bottom of the plane and I'm just like, huh, weird. (laughs) And yeah, I've heard this, a couple different people talk about this, but you know, your whole life's supposed to flash before you. And it's like this uh, biological reflex to try and basically index in your brain. Like, have I ever seen this situation before? Have I ever heard about this? Like, has anybody in my DNA ever experienced this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, uh, none of my, none of my ancestors have ever been dragged underneath the plane before. So, you know, I was just basically drew a blank. So, uh, anyways, court snaps, fall, uh, fall parachute deploys. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty violent shock and nominal deployment. Uh, no, it was, um, I was falling on my back, so it actually deployed underneath my arm. So when I watched this, like, uh, this green fabric get ripped and even at night, you could see it and just see this green fabric get pulled right, right underneath my armpit. I'm like, here we go again. And (laughs) it was like, I just basically got like, just like whipped like 180 degrees again. So that was pretty bad. Normally like your, your parachute is facing the sky when you jump out. So it just gets ripped off your back, but, um, you know, bummed to the ground it. Definitely didn't turn out well either. But how, how long did it take to get the ground from that point? Uh, I think it was about like five or six seconds. Yeah, my uh, one of my best friends, uh, Jordan Taylor, who's actually still teaching people how to jump out of planes in the infantry. Um, he he was the assistant jump master, so he was the second last one out of the plane. And I was a senior because we swap. Um, I was a senior, so I was the very last one out. And he, you know, you, know, you jump out of the plane, you, par- you check your parachute, and then you look around, and you know, he obviously is looking for me, and uh, he can't see me. I'm not. You know, at 900, 800 feet, I'm at like 100 feet. And he's like, oh, boy. He's like, all right. So I landed. It was snow. It was winter in December in Edmonton. So I was really lucky. It was a nice, big, soft landing. And then, uh, yeah, Jordan basically just landed pretty close to me. And he came running over, and he basically helped me walk off the drop zone that night. And then we we teach people all the time, or we, we coax people all the time, that if you have some kind of a problem parachuting, you just got to get back in the saddle. So and I don't obviously recommend this to anybody, but walked off, got looked at by, by the medic that was on the drops oh, on that night. Like, were you injured? Like, were you hurting? Oh yeah. Like, so my, uh, I, I had like a, a whole long list of injuries and I didn't really find out about them cause I kind of, you know, went home for an hour, didn't sleep and then went back to the airport, got jocked back up. Um, basically every parachute instructor or jump master in the whole unit was out in that plane the night for the next jump basically just like helping me and it was the scariest thing i've ever done in my life was get right back in that plane and jump again and i didn't just jump again uh went in and actually uh did the jump master duty so i actually went back and did the exact same thing i just did <laughs> and it was terrible it was uh it was super it was super super scary like in, in all like all honesty it was uh it was super scary but all like all my brothers were in the plane with me they're all like extremely experienced there's nothing that was going to happen to me. I just basically had to get back in the plane, jump again, get over it and then go right to the hospital. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so did you have like a broken leg or what, what was the actual injuries? Uh, long, long list. So I, um, I ended up tearing. So your femoral, I didn't know, I didn't know this, but your femoral artery and a lot of your arteries have like an inner and an outer sleeve. So my inner sleeve in my femoral artery had essentially just like disintegrated, uh, by being ripped so hard. And then the outer sleeve was, was pretty torn, but it didn't actually break. Cause if it did, I would have bled out internally right away. And then, so I had a whole bunch of problems with my femoral artery and my left leg. Uh, obviously like my, my ankle was, was destroyed. And then, uh, like from my parachute opening underneath me, uh, I, I was pretty convinced that I broke my back, like uh, hitting the side of the plane with my head. Pretty sure I got, a, I, it's tough to tell. Cause I can't really tell if I had a lot of brain damage before the night or if I've just had a lot of brain damage in general, but I, it's a bad joke, but, uh, <laughs> you know, no, it's, um, yeah, it was a long list of injuries and essentially I went, went into the base hospital and, you know, the doctor there is, you know, a family doctor who's used to doing triage for, you know, pretty routine stuff like a family clinic. And he's like, so what brings you in today? And I tell him the story and he's like, no way. Like, yeah. He's like, so what's wrong? Like, I'm pretty sure I broke my back. Like it was the only thing that hurt. It was the one thing out of everything that hurt the most. So he gives me a chest x-ray and I'm like, what? That, that, that's not what I need. And he's like, well, you know what? Take a couple of weeks off, and uh, you know it's December. Go on, go, go on Christmas leave. You Did know. he check your back? No, they didn't get it checked at all. He basically like sent me for a chest X-ray in case I had like a pneumothorax, like a collapsing lung. And I'm like, I, I wouldn't be here if I had a collapsing lung. So, anyways, it was bizarre. But it, basically, what had happened was, um, I was in the best shape of my life. That obviously had a huge impact on on the whole thing. And then, uh, yeah. After that, basically, my, my condition just kind of get got a little bit worse going down. I didn't know how badly uh, my leg was damaged. So being a bit of an idiot, just decided to, you know, get back at it. Just walk it off? Yeah, <laughs> basically. So Like, did uh, everything heal? Nope. Uh, so I basically spent the next three months, uh, you know, getting in worse shape. And then uh, I had a bunch of problems with my leg. Eventually, when I got, uh, got a whole battery of tests done, and then that, that turned out that because the inner sleeve of my femoral artery was, as the blood's going through it, it's, it's hitting all these like frays now and it's slowing down and clotting. So my leg was kind of filling like a, like with, with clot. So my leg was going cold and numb. I couldn't feel it. Super, super painful. Like by the, after three months, I pretty much just couldn't walk. I couldn't walk 25 feet. So went in and got looked at, at, at an emergency department here in Edmonton. And then there, it took them like five minutes. They're like, yeah, you are, you got all kinds of these problems. So then that basically kicked off uh, uh, a whole series of operations over the next couple of years. So went in and out of uh, emergency and, and ORs and ICU and, you know, along the way. So uh, just January of 2018, my daughter was born. Uh, so after the accident, uh, I got married the next year uh, to like the love of my life. And then uh, the next year after that, our daughter was born in January and then March, um, I had to basically go in and get a femoral replacement. So they gave me a, a whole new femoral artery. So when you have like a, a heart bypass, they yeah. take a, there's, you have like a spare vein uh, in your leg called a saphenous vein. So they, um, you know, they, they take that vein and they put it in as your bypass because it's part of your own body. Yeah. So they're like, we're not going to operate on you because this is the only, you only have one of these veins. So we don't want to basically like, exp like take the whole shot. Like you're 33 at the time. And I'm like, May as well just do it now because like there's no quality of life for me. If I can't walk, if I can't walk my kids to school when I grow up or if I can't run and be, and be physically fit and like 
exercise, which is a huge component to the mental health side. Yeah. I'm like, whatever. I'm like, I got friends who have lost legs. I'm like, they're, get, they're out there. They're grinding it out. Like, there's life. Like, it's not the end of the world. So we basically took, got a femoral uh, replacement. So my daughter was so like- So they took that, that vein and they put it in as your femoral? Yeah, exactly. So I essentially, they closed off my old femoral artery that was all shredded and then gave me this new one. And then I basically had to learn how to walk again. So my wife uh, works in healthcare and she didn't have, dis- she doesn't, uh, for her job, she doesn't get um, disability yeah. or uh, sorry, she doesn't get maternity benefits. So she had to go back to work. And then I was basically a stay-at-home dad for the next like eight, nine months. So uh, I learned how to walk again while I, I, for the first time in my life, I, I spent, you know, eight months at home, yeah. like in, like at home, which I've never done before in my whole life. So were you bored silly? No, it was amazing. Like it was, it was probably the, one of the coolest things It's probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because like having, having my first child, like, and being that person, one, being a stay at home parent, ruthless. Like when people talk about, you know, like going to work or being a stay at home parent, being the stay at home parent, always the hardest part guaranteed. And I've heard this from other people, but I'm telling you right now, like you want to crush the Taliban or, or Islamic state. You just find a bunch of single moms sitting out there. <laughs> that hard, like it is hard work, and it's nonstop, right? So you get the grind down. But while I was, so I was, I was learning how to walk, looking after my 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 daughter as she was kind of going through that first stage, and then, uh, you know, obviously I, I knew that I wanted to get out, and that's kind of where I had this idea for the company was uh, was in that period. I want, I knew I wouldn't stay in the army. The army would have kept me. The apps like they're phenomenal about everything, um, but I, I just couldn't ride a desk. So I did well, you were probably done jumping too. Oh, that was that was the end of it. Like I, I would never, I could never do like the actual job uh, that I loved. So I had to basically move on, and, and you know, breaking up is hard to do, especially when you come from a, from like inside the military. I was extremely lucky for for having such a tight group of like, yeah. a brotherhood, and uh, you know, leaving it is really tough. And the army isn't exactly the easiest to break up with either. So it took me uh, took me a little while to get like get, lifestyle wise. You mean? Uh, everything like leaving the military, uh, you have like, I don't know how it is for everybody else, but I think for the majority of people, they actually don't have any social network outside of it. So people who are like looking at leaving the military, you're essentially stuck between with what you know, which is the military. It's a career progression. Here's your track. I know just by looking at people because they wear their rank on their, and their unit patch. I know where they're from and I know what, I know how they fit into the pie relative to me. I don't know what it's like to leave the military and like where my skill set can actually find a rewarding career. Like a lot of guys, a lot of people, guys and girls leave the military and then they look at, you know, getting a job at a rail company and they're like, okay, I'll have to go and basically start from the bottom and work at, you know, becoming a, a, a conductor. Yeah, start as like an operator. Yeah. But in reality, it's like you were just like a sergeant major of a, of a unit. Like you were responsible for like 150 people. You shouldn't, you don't need to be the operator. You should be the, like the rail yard manager, but from the military, like you've never, like you've never it's not had transferable. It's a hundred percent transferable. And that's the problem is that a lot of people just don't see what the outside world really needs. And entirely speaking, it's the soft skills. Like you don't have to be a aviation mechanic in the air force to try and find an aviation mechanic job on the civilian side. Like that's a pretty easy one. Yeah. Um, but if you look at all the all the all the skills that are the most important, it doesn't matter. Like military leadership is exactly the same that I'm finding in the civilian sector, or in government. Like leadership and people are people, and if you understand like what the military does, 
it's pound for pound the absolute best producer of high quality leadership because at the end of the day, nobody is ever looking for a bonus and we're very, very good at weeding out people who are kind of selfish, which is super fun leaving the military and then realizing that being a quiet professional doesn't work if you're trying to start a tech company. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty awkward. Yeah. Yeah. That I guess would not be transferable to what you're doing. Well, I just had to kind of reframe it a little bit. So uh, fast forward a little bit. So I left the military in June of 2018. um, And then, uh, a couple of weeks later, I was actually down in Calgary at a pitch competition for this tech com- this tech hub thing. Yeah, with, with your drone idea. What, and this is an idea. So I've done a bunch of work, done a bunch of research, um, kind of have a plan together. Yeah. And I've got this idea. And I'm like fresh out of the military. And I go down there to this pitch competition. And I, I don't know if anybody's ever really gone to these, but, you know, a lot of the you know, it's pitching, it's a whole show and song and dance thing. Like, you know, my friend Karen had a problem and then I realized that I could help Karen and then I realized there's a whole market for this and <laughs> therefore I invented Karen's problem solver and you're like, okay. And I got up there and I was like, all right, this is a brief, basically. Like, this is the company, this is the problem that we're gonna solve. We're gonna solve like massive challenges like wildfire. There's no reason to have it anymore. And the entire process is intelligence driven. That's the critical problem in the whole flaw to, to the whole system. They just don't have enough information to make better decisions. And so obviously I didn't win the pitch competition. Uh, but one of the, one of the judges that was there was from a program, uh, down in, down in the Valley, down in California. So, uh, she offered me a scholarship to this program at Draper university. And I'm like, I've never heard of this before. So basically got on a plane, uh, a month, month and a half later, and then flew down to California for this five week program. Like I had no idea what I was getting into. I bought a one way plane ticket, flew down there. Yeah. I have a, my son was born uh, in June. So it was like, okay, here we go. So I left my wife, who's a saint, um, uh, with two, with, uh, with two kids. And then I flew down. <laughs> one to, brand newborn. One brand newborn. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like my son. And then, so I'm down, down in San Francisco and it's like, crazy like uh i basically had my head detonated on contact there just meeting people like from these massive companies that like i had to google companies like all day long i'm like i don't even know who this person is like and people are like oh i have such strong opinions about this this next speaker in the program i'm like who's this guy oh he's joe lonsdale from palantir who's a massive security company for software working with government and defense yeah and then the next guy is this guy who makes like uh, robots for, you know, unarmed robots for, uh, like mall surveillance, basically to reduce petty, like, like, uh, mitigate petty crime. Uh, and the program itself was phenomenal. And the biggest thing I got out of the whole program was I got over, uh, that imposter syndrome, right? Like I'm fresh out of the infantry, like as an, as a, as an enlisted guy, I wasn't even like an officer. I didn't even have a degree. And so I went down this program and there's people with like a master's degree in dark matter theory from South Africa. And I'm like, Oh, so you're my roommate. Cool. And I just realized it doesn't matter. The the point of the, what I'm trying to circle back to is the military. Uh, everybody ha- everybody has their own superpower. Mine, uh, I got all these. I wouldn't really call it a superpower, but I got all these life experiences and skills from the military, and they are a huge tool. And you just have to learn how to use it. So, you know, it's easy. The military, the gold standard is to be a quite professional, but that only works if people understand what the mission is, right? Everybody right. can just get on with it. And if people don't know what the mission is, like 
we're starting a company that's going to do this or, or that. You have to you're get defining your own mission. Exactly. So that's that's kind of how the, how the whole thing kind of started. But the um, the cool thing is, since then, uh, we've built this like incredible team, and uh, it's it's gone it's gone about as as well as it's gone better than I than I, than I thought to be honest. Like we're we're just moving really really fast. Like um, uh, two days ago, we just got accepted into this program with Boeing, you know, a small little company out of Seattle. So. <laughs> I, mean, I might have heard of them. Yeah, they might have had some uh, aircraft issues recently. Yeah, they had some aircraft issues. They've they've had some uh, some launch program issues, but I mean they're also the biggest aerospace company in the world. So yeah, so we're we're super excited for all these things that are kind of all cresting. And I mean, COVID I think is like uh, people always kind of ask about how COVID's been for us. COVID's like a huge opportunity for us in all honesty because it's it's essentially broken up business as usual. And for us, uh, like inside the company at Pegasus, it's just a leadership challenge. Like we saw this coming in, in January and February. We had a talk with the entire team and we put some measures in place. Like John, our COO, is, this is what he does from his military background. He manages large organizations. So we're a small one, so it's pretty easy. And that's, that's kind of how, how we've gotten through COVID. And uh, we've walked into some pretty big opportunities coming up in, uh, for the company. And we're just really excited to to really work with general aviation. I guess like that's the the reason I was super excited to come onto the podcast with you guys tonight is we are our entire approach is we we all have to work together and we are more than willing to to meet people and and find people who who kind of see the future of you know the next couple of years and what it's going to look like and let's all work together to make sure that it happens and it it, it happens safely and. It's a positive sum for everybody, manned aircraft, unmanned aircraft, the whole aerospace industry itself, and build something truly like world competitive here in Alberta. I've got one final question. Sure. You were born and raised and have so far lived the majority of your life in central Alberta. Um, What? So you've also started a new business. Uh, You've gone through the whole investment program, game, whatever you want to call it. For all those other people around the area, they're not in San Francisco, the Bay Area. They're up in central Alberta. Um, how do you suggest or what do you recommend for them based on your learnings and experiences uh, on how to start their own business uh, and and, st- and make that leap kind of from bootstrapping to uh, early round, early stage investment uh, based on what you've seen? Like if somebody has some good idea in satellites or something. How can they really Do you take know so many that satellites? What's that? You know so many satellites? No, I was just an example. Oh, okay. There's a lot yeah. of people like at say uh, the University of Alberta that uh, are into that kind of thing. Um, Young kids. Yeah. Myself. Final. <laughs> it sounds super cliche, but all the other advice out there, uh, listen to it, but make your own decision and be prepared to put in a massive amount of work. Like if you're not doing 120 hours a week, you're not trying because the natural state for your company is failure. So it's just a massive amount of work. And like, there's no substitute. I've met some of like, I've met the smartest people I think I'll ever meet in my life uh, in like the last two years. And it doesn't matter. Like you just have to outwork everybody, be smart and, and think and adapt. Because if you're trying to change something, the speed that technology is moving and just the entire world right now with everything kind of going uh, you know, 45 degrees left with COVID and the economy and everything else like that. Find a problem we're solving and, and just get to it. Don't wait for the 80% plan. 
start with a 40% plan and, and just figure it out along the way. Just jump off the cliff. So so this really isn't the Bay Area. So it might be more difficult to meet those people that no, can, that can finance? No. Um, San Francisco. Uh, so after we finished the program, our company got placed first out of 80 companies from around the world. And basically it was a, a pretty, pretty amazing like like reinforcement. But we didn't want to build a company in California. We chose to build it here in northern Alberta because this is the place that works the absolute best. It's not Quebec and it's it's not Texas right now or Utah or anything like that. It's here in northern Alberta because of a couple of really unique things. It doesn't matter. Like uh, I met a guy, his name's Kip Fife. Uh, I met him uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he started a small company when he moved out from Ontario to Cochrane. Uh, that company's first customer was uh, Nike and essentially invented that uh, Ant Bluetooth. Uh, so, you know, I think late last year, uh, Garmin moved their world headquarters to Cochrane because Kip is from Cochrane and he loves the ranch lifestyle. It doesn't, and he told me uh, sage advice. It doesn't matter where you're from. You can be from Cochrane or Edmonton, or you can be from Yellowknife, or you can be from Thunder Bay. It doesn't matter. Like the world right now, you don't have to go to the Valley or go to Boston or any of these places unless you absolutely need to. If you're in software as a service, maybe that's a different value prop for you, a different calculation because there's a high concentration of people you're looking for. But here in Edmonton, like we're, I think we're ranked third or fourth in the world for machine learning and artificial intelligence research. Figuring out how to commercialize that, that huge opportunity. I mean, there's a huge number of people here. There's direct flights between San Francisco and, and Edmonton and Calgary for a reason, right? Like it doesn't yeah. matter. You don't have to go down to the valley. If it's not for you, you definitely can't go there. And that's part of the, the thing about just doing the work. You'll figure that out, like where the best place in the world is for you to go. And just if you're really serious about starting a company, especially in tech, just be prepared to do a massive amount of work. I'll work, any, work harder than you've ever thought and be prepared to work at it for a really long time. The um, I guess that one other uh, plug for the, the Villeneuve area especially is um, there's also, especially for aerospace development companies, uh, new tech, that kind of thing, people that need testing space. Alberta has a whole bunch of space all over the place. There's very low air traffic compared to some other places, especially in California, for example, which is kind of where most of the aerospace testing happens. Uh, very low air traffic, uh, very low population density, so you're not flying over populated areas. Um, the, the radio is very quiet. Um, and the uh, especially around Villeneuve, the control zones and the, the Nav Canada staff are very welcoming to that kind of thing and very easygoing. Yeah, we actually just had a meeting with um, with the Edmonton International Airport's uh, Nav, Nav Canada the tower manager there and the tower manager here from Villeneuve. And both of them, I mean, their, their first questions were, how can we help? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, what a lot of people kind of look at, they're like, well, how are drones going to change? Like, I'm really nervous about things. The reason why we love Villeneuve and the Sturgeon County in Northern Alberta is because of the culture, right? It just comes down to, you know, find people who are forward looking and people who are practical. It's not about making a huge blowout of things like the tower here at Villeneuve. I mean, when we were here a, a month ago, we were standing outside the hangar with you, Scott, and you know, over on one side, there's a guy basically doing a tail slide with his engine off, practicing acrobatics in a biplane. <laughs> and there's another guy over here doing, uh, you know, simulated ILS approaches as a student and it's, it's getting sunset. And I'm like, yeah, no factor for either one. This is, this can all happen. Hey, perfect. Like this is where we belong, <laughs> right? You look at like rules are, rules are in place to keep people safe. As long as people are safe. I mean, 
it's all about making making things go forward. That's that was basically what I think what kind of sold us on the area. Anything else? No, I uh, I think we covered pretty much everything we wanted to cover here. So, do you, you have any any other uh, thoughts or any questions? No, I think that's it. Well, thanks for coming on our podcast. Yeah, this has been fantastic. So, um, if there's anybody else, I guess I'm supposed to have an ask at the end of every time I meet people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if anybody's interested in in working with us or, or opening the conversation from general aviation, uh, we have a website pegasusimagery.ca. Or uh, you can just email us at info at pegasusimagery.ca, and uh, we're, we'd love to love to connect and expand uh, kind of our network with general aviation. Are there any specific skills or so on that you're looking for? Oh yeah, really good, really good catch. Um, so we're, we advertise some positions on our website for careers, but uh, ours is a, essentially a talent-based uh, kind of hiring process. We leave, we actually try and recruit people just as we meet them. Like if we meet the right person yeah. and maybe they're not from aerospace or they're not from, you know, a particular technical skill, it doesn't matter. Like would I hire myself? Like I'm from the infantry. Yeah. What transferable skills would I have for starting an aerospace company? Yeah. It's all, it's all about high potential. So you can have a master's degree or you can have a high school diploma. If you have the right, if you're the right person, we're looking for you. So, uh, that's kind of my shameless plug out there. We're, we're actually hiring a bunch of people right now. So for a couple of different positions and we're really just looking, if we meet the right people, we'll find the, we'll find the role in the company for them. Excellent. Right. How, um, how can people get holy? What's the easiest way? Uh, you can go through the website or, uh, that, or you can just email us uh, either at info at career, uh, info at Pegasus imagery.ca. Or if you think that you're, you're up for the challenge. I mean, like we're looking for a players who got, a uh, huge potential to join the team and really take us to the next level. You can email us through careers at pegasusimagery.ca as well. So there it is. So if you're high potential, interested in aerospace, unmanned vehicles, developing new products, willing to work very, very hard, um, willing to take some risk, then pegasusimagery.ca is probably a place to visit. That's the jam. All right. Thanks, Cole. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Edmonton. If you're looking to start a podcast or are curious as to how a podcast can help you grow your business, we can help. Podcast Edmonton offers podcast and live streaming consulting, as well as professional podcast recording. Visit us at podcastedmonton.com.